There once was a bishop serving the church, thankfully a different denomination than ours. A bishop was serving the church, and in retirement, his uh, job became uh, to recruit for the local seminary for his denomination, which means that uh, as candidates were thinking about going to seminary, thinking about serving uh, the Lord through the church, he would meet with them over a meal, and he would interview them to find out whether or not they should continue their studies by going to seminary. He'd ask them questions about their call and their life and scripture and all this sort of stuff. And at the end of every interview, he ended it the same way. No matter who the candidate was, the same way. Every time he said, pretend that I'm not from the seminary. Tell me why I should go to church. Why should I go to church? And the bishop says that over the years, he heard all these great answers. A candidate would say something like, oh, you know, you, you just, you can't understand the value of being part of a community. Where, you, where you're expected, where people love you, they care for you, and the bishop would say, well, actually, I'm an AA. I already have all the community I need. So then the candidate would say something like, oh, well, then you need to come to join us in our mission. We, we minister to the, the last, the least, the lost, the little. We help those who are in need in our community. And the bishop would say, actually, I'm a member of Rotary, and we already do a lot to help the needs of people. So then one of the candidates would say, oh, well, then you've got to come to hear the music. We've just got the best music. The music will move you. It will change you. And the bishop would say, I have season tickets to the local symphony. I have all the music I need. And so the bishop, years and years of interviews, he, he shared once that not one time, not a single interview with any candidate for seminary did any person say anything about Jesus. Not one. Now, for us, we're not in the business of trying to change society, even though it sometimes happens because of the power of the Spirit moving among us. We're not uh, the paragons of community service or even morality, even though being part of a community actually changes your life, changes the way you behave. We don't even hold all the musical prodigies, even though we've got the best band this side of the Mississippi. What are we here for? I mean, if the church is serious about being the church, there really is only one thing that we have to offer. It just so happens that that one thing happens to be the difference that makes all the difference in the world. It's Jesus. But who is he? Who is Jesus? The light and the darkness. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The King of kings. Every name, every title that we can apply to Jesus is outrageous and wild, but none of them are more outrageous or wild than this. Jesus is God. Jesus, whose name literally means the one who saves, is the Savior, even though the rulers, the authorities, the powers, the principalities did everything they could think of to cross him out. Jesus is fully divine, fully human, capable of more than we could ever possibly imagine, yet finite and fragile in a way that we all know way too well. But more importantly, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Every time that you're reading your scripture and you see the word Lord in the New Testament, it's usually all uppercase, but it's a little small. That's because it's the word Adonai. It's the word for God. So when we say Jesus is Lord, what we're actually saying is Jesus is God. Which is kind of crazy because it means that in his life when he was sneezing or coughing, when he was sweaty or irritable, his disciples worshipped him. And all of his disciples were good Jews. They knew you could only worship God alone. Not God in him, not God through him, but him. Because Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. It's not some nice and lofty title. 
Jesus is not just a ruler among other rulers. To confess Jesus as Lord is to say that he is God. And that's the whole thing. That's all of it right there. It's staggering. If we have the fortitude to take a a step back from it all, to take it all in at once, we believe that Jesus is at one moment both the second person of the Trinity, fully God, but also fully human. Someone who stubbed his toes, who cried, who laughed until his belly hurt. That's who Jesus is. And Paul tries to take a stab at this in Philippians 2. What I read for you this morning is very likely the first Christian hymn, the first song for the church, the first song shared to help share the faith. Like the songs we were singing just a few minutes ago, like the hymns that we're going to sing later this morning, it, the songs tell us about who Jesus is. That's what Paul tries to do. God, in a wild and reckless way, chose not to exploit divinity but embrace humanity, became like a slave, took on human likeness, humble to the point of death, even death on the cross. Even so, his name is the name that is above all names. He rises from the grave, author of salvation. And in the light of his light, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Now I'll confess that there is no way to do justice to this song, to this hymn, this bit from Philippians 2. There's no sermon worthy of this song. These few verses contain all the splendor and the glory and the terror of Jesus. It's the whole career of Christ in a song. From the shining light of the incarnation to the darkness of death on the cross. The cross, of course. I don't know, maybe we've domesticated the cross. We're not afraid of it. It doesn't scare us anymore. We hang it up in our living rooms. We plaster them on the walls of the church. Some of us wear them around our necks. But the cross was Rome's way of punishing those who spoke too loud. The cross was Rome's way of saying to everyone with eyes to see, Caesar is Lord and don't you forget it. Which is why the claim that Christ is Lord always will be a radical thing to say. We cannot know who Jesus is outside of the cross. The cross reminds us of so many things all at once. Our culpability, that we likely would have been the very people to shout Hosanna at the beginning of the week and crucify at the end. It's the reminder of our unearned, undeserved forgiveness. What does Jesus say from the cross? Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. It's a reminder of God's humiliation and humility, the condescension of the divine into the muck and mire of our own making. Ultimately, the cross is a reminder of Jesus' love for those who return it and even for those who don't. It's no wonder then that the creed that we share, the Apostles' Creed, the largest section right in the middle is all about Jesus. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. This part of the creed is all about Jesus, all about what he did and what happened to him. But what happened to him has now happened to us. That happening changes everything about us. For example, I am not a father or a husband or a brother or a son or a fan of the Washington commanders who happens to be a Christian and said, I am a Christian who happens to be a father, a husband, a brother, a son, and a fan of an overwhelmingly frustrating football franchise. 
Christianity, my faith in Christ is my primary identity. Everything else flows from that, not the other way around. Because every confession is a promise. I confess Jesus as Lord, not because it's my personal opinion, something that's relegated to my mind. I confess that Jesus is Lord because I know and trust and believe that Jesus has changed me from the inside out. Because if Jesus is Lord, then everything else is baloney. On Wednesday night, I, I was here at the church. We had this thing on Wednesday. It's called the garden. We have small groups and a meal. And I'm leading a small group right now on the Apostles' Creed. Take an hour to really dive deep into what the creed says and how it came to be. And on Wednesday night, downstairs in the, in the library, we were talking about the creed. And I started by saying, what do we know about Jesus? I got out a whiteboard, and I wrote down everything we could think of, and we hit all the highlights, most of which are in the creed. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, born under strange circumstances, lived in places like Capernaum and Jerusalem and Nazareth, all those sorts of things. We wrote it on the board, and then we moved on to something else, and, and one of the women in our group, Jeannie Duddy, who I love, she said, wait, 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 we forgot something. Jesus got angry. Jesus got angry. Which, of course, is true. Jesus experienced all the emotions that we do, joy and love and grief and sadness. He famously wept over Lazarus. He had to have all these emotions because, as Athanasius said, that which is not assumed, that which is not taken on, cannot be redeemed. God in Christ has to know all of us in order to redeem us. But how often do we think about angry Jesus? Jesus when Jesus was mad. Oh, there's a lot of paintings of Jesus out there. I've seen a lot of them. Pensive Jesus, happy Jesus, thoughtful Jesus, laughing Jesus. I don't see a lot of pictures of mad Jesus. How do you feel about the fact that Jesus got mad? We tend to picture, I think, Jesus as this sort of long-haired, bearded hippie type wandering around. But he had a temple tantrum. He got really mad. He saw the tables and he flipped them over. He called out the religious elite, the rulers, for no longer leading. Why does Jesus get so angry? Why does he get so mad? Well, he tells us. He says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. You've made it into a den of robbers. In short, Jesus gets mad because the people of God were living as if God no longer made any difference. They were living and moving and existing in a world in which their desires mattered more to them than anything else. And that made Jesus mad. We're Methodists. None of us here have ever been mad about anything, right? We're happy people. We don't know what it's like to be mad, but maybe we do. Have you ever been mad? One time. Thank you, Ellen, for that confession. Have you ever been mad when you turn on the TV and you see how certain Christians are behaving? Do you, do you see that on the news and you feel your, your fists clench tightly? Have you ever had to grit your teeth through a sermon? Because as you were listening, you realized it had absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. Have you ever been mad at the church? I'll put it another way, what is the point of all of this if not for the difference that Jesus makes? I had a professor in seminary who's now a friend, his name is Stanley Harawas, and he is known for being angry. He is known for being angry. He speaks with a lot of words that I'm not allowed to say out loud in church. He cusses a lot, in other words. He's an angry son of a bean, or whatever you want to say. 
Stanley. He's angry all the time, and, and he says the reason he's angry is because he finds himself surrounded by Christians day after day for whom Jesus no longer makes any difference. He is mad at Christians who live and move in the world, who claim they're Christians, and live as if it doesn't matter whether or not Jesus rose from the grave. He says again and again that his anger stems mostly at people like me, at pastors who fail to challenge their churches to trust that without God they have nothing. In other words, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, if Jesus is not at the center of every single thing we do as a church, then we are wasting our time. It's Jesus, 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 Jesus. Otherwise, we just become one group among many groups. They're trying to figure out how to make it through day after day. But that's not what the church is. The church is different. And that difference is possible because of Jesus. Jesus comes. He initiates something through healing and calling and preaching and teaching and challenging and dying and rising. It's a story that actually changes us. Now, the church is this motley crew of saints and sinners alike, and we can do radical and impossible things because of Jesus. We're a people of a different story, and because we believe that different story, we can sustain one another through the most awful and terrible moments of our lives. We can be there for people when they feel like they have no one else because we know how the story ends because we know Jesus. We exist as a foretaste of God's coming kingdom. We live differently now so that people might know what life will be like after they die. And the best part of this is we don't have to do Jesus' work for him. He's already done what we need. The only thing we have to do is live according to that story instead of the story of the world. Which, of course, is easier said than done. Do you know how hard it is to be the church? Do you know how hard it is to love all these people? We're terrible. We do all sorts of things we shouldn't do. We all avoid doing things we should. And yet, in some way, shape, or form, we believe that every person in this room is worth the value and love that God sees in them. That's crazy. No one else does that. The reason we do it is because we believe that trust, forgiveness, grace, that those things are a more important reality than anything else. We believe that peace really is possible in this life, that love and grace and forgiveness really is possible because we know that God has showed love and grace and forgiveness to us. And yet I find myself feeling like a 15-minute sermon on these few verses of Scripture are insufficient. How in the world can we do justice to the one who brought a new justice? So maybe we should sing a song Maybe I should lead us in a song. Um, I was looking at the hymnal and thinking about Jesus, and there's a hymn I really, really like. It's 163, if you want to turn in your hymnal so I'm not the only person singing in a moment. And I was thinking about this service, and I don't really just like singing by myself, and I really like playing the drums, and I thought, surely there's no way any person has ever played this hymn with the drums. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play this. I'm going to try to play it and sing it at the same time. This is, Ask Ye What Great Thing I Know. Um, of all the things I know, the greatest thing I know is Jesus. So if you know this hymn, and even if you don't, please join me as I play on the drums and try to sing this song. <clears throat>
ask ye what great thing I know that delights and stirs me so. What the high reward I win, whose the name I glory in, Jesus Christ the crucified. Can't believe we're doing this. Who defeats my fiercest foes? Who consoles my saddest foes? Who revives my fainting heart? Healing all its hidden smart? Jesus Christ the crucified. Who is life in life to me? death of death will be, who will place me on his right, with the countless hosts of light, Jesus Christ the crucified. This is that great thing I know, this delights and stirs me so. Faith in him who died to save, him who triumphed o'er the grave, Jesus Christ the crucified. If you ask me what great thing I know, it's only one thing, Jesus Christ. And so we offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.